Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. I want to call your attention to the, the first and last verses of our sermon text. Referring to Jesus, verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And verse 52, the last verse, says something similar. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. These two verses are the the bookends of our sermon text. Between these two bookends is the account of the 12-year-old Jesus visiting Jerusalem. And there are some intriguing details recorded in the account of Jesus visiting Jerusalem. So it's tempting to jump right into those details. But the careful Bible student will notice how these bookends frame our sermon text. Uh, There's repetition in these bookends. And whenever there's Uh, repetition in the Bible, it's often an indication that we need to pause for a moment and see what the Holy Spirit intends by the repetition. So in regards to the, the first and last verses of our sermon text, we would do well to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to take away from, from the statement in verse 40, that the infant Jesus grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And what are we supposed to take away from the statement in verse 52 that the 12-year-old Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? I submit to you that these bookends are calling our attention to the humanity of Jesus. To the humanity of Jesus. Much of what Luke has already written in chapters 1 and 2 are telling us about the lordship of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and the messianic identity of Jesus. Uh, To do just a really quick recap, Luke begins in chapter 1 by introducing us to John the Baptist. And we're told that John the Baptist is the forerunner to Jesus, meaning his job is to prepare the people for the Lord. And so the emphasis there is on the lordship of Jesus. And then Luke tells how the angel Gabriel appeared before Mary and informed her that she's going to miraculously conceive and bring forth a son. And Gabriel told Mary that her son will be great, that he will be called the son of the highest. The emphasis here is on the deity of Jesus. And Gabriel goes on to tell Mary that the Lord will give to Jesus the throne of his father David. And the emphasis there is on Jesus' messianic identity. When Mary visited Elizabeth, Elizabeth exclaimed, the mother of her Lord had come to visit her. Uh, And once again, the emphasis here is on the lordship of Jesus. When Zacharias regained his ability to speak, he immediately began to prophesy, saying, blessed is the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And the emphasis here is on Jesus as the Savior of his people. When the angel notified the shepherds of Jesus' birth, they were told that a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. The emphasis here 
is on Jesus as the Savior and his messianic identity, being the Christ, as well as his lordship. And when the infant Jesus was presented in the temple, Simeon recognized him to be the long-awaited consolation of Israel. Simeon held the baby Jesus and began to bless the Lord, saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. The emphasis here is on Jesus as the messianic savior. All of these things precede our sermon text. All of these things lead up to our sermon text. And this is where the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to insert the first book in. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The first book in, therefore, describes the stretch of time from Jesus' infancy to when he was 12 years old. It tells us that during this first 12 years of Jesus' life, he was growing physically, he was growing spiritually, he was growing in wisdom. And the first book in also tells us that the grace of God was upon him. The second bookend describes that stretch of time from when Jesus was 12 years old to when he was 30 years old, and indeed 30 years and beyond. And since the next event in Jesus' life that Luke writes about is his baptism, which we believe to have happened when Jesus was about 30 years old, the second bookend is letting us know that Jesus continued to increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men from the time he was 12 to the time he was 30 and even beyond. And so when we combine these two bookends together, and that is we read them as two sequential statements describing Jesus' growth and maturity, they're teaching us that Jesus progressively and consistently grew in wisdom and stature from the time he was an infant to the time he was baptized and began his public ministry. And over the course of those 30 years, Jesus was growing physically stronger, he was growing spiritually stronger, he was growing in wisdom, and he was growing in favor with God and men. The information contained between these two bookends is a snapshot image of Jesus as he was growing in all these ways. Luke is giving us a progress report, so to speak, of Jesus as he's growing from infancy up until his public ministry, how he's growing in wisdom and understanding. And this progress report is the snapshot taken at the age of 12. And this, in, this is an impressive progress report. But don't overlook the point that Jesus needed to grow in these areas. The fact that our sermon text is emphasizing his physical and spiritual growth, along with his growth in wisdom and favor with God and men, shows us something important about the humanity of Jesus. And as I think you already know, Jesus is uniquely presented to us in the scriptures as the God-man, the God-man. Uh, He's the divine second person of the Trinity who took on flesh. He's the divine second person of the Trinity who became a man so he could redeem man. Or to use the words of John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Christ Jesus, 
That's, that's who we're reading about here. But to say that Jesus is the God-man is to affirm a doctrine which is called the hypostatic union. And it's one of the great doctrines of our Christian faith. It asserts that Jesus possesses two distinct and complete natures, one divine and one human. Both of these natures are simultaneously contained within one person. They're distinct from each other and yet inseparable from each other. So that Jesus is at the same time fully God and fully man. The 5th century uh, Chalcedonian Creed explains it this way. It says that Jesus is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Christ Jesus. Now, it's not my intention to rabbit trail us into the deep weeds of historical theology this morning, but rather I simply want to make sure that all of us understand that when I'm speaking about the humanity of Jesus, I'm not denying the divinity of Jesus. And I also want to make sure that all of us understand that when I'm speaking about the humanity of Jesus, I'm not trying to blend the two natures together into a third nature, a composite nature. No, both, Jesus's nature, both of Jesus' natures remain complete and intact while perfectly unified within his singular person. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons. But specific to our sermon text, Luke is focusing our attention upon Jesus' human nature. And what we're seeing is that in his humanity, Jesus was like every other human in the sense that he needed to grow. He needed to learn. He needed to study. He needed to hear and memorize scripture. He needed to mature in his understanding. He needed to increase in knowledge and wisdom. He needed to develop the skills and giftings uh, that he had so that he could faithfully serve God according to his calling. If you hold an errant or an unorthodox view of the hypostatic union, then you'll likely be unimpressed with the 12-year-old Jesus in our sermon text. You'll be unimpressed. As Luke is presenting this progress report to us, you'll read his description of Jesus interacting with the religious teachers in the temple, and you'll say to yourself, of course Jesus is able to amaze them with his knowledge. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. But if you hold a proper view of the hypostatic union, then you'll understand that the humanity of Jesus needed to grow in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Just like every other person needs to grow in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So as you read about the boy Jesus in our sermon text, you will see just how much he has grown in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And you will recognize that this 12-year-old boy is actually very impressive. The rabbis in the temple 
were obviously impressed with Jesus. But let me suggest to you that the most impressive part of Jesus' growth and knowledge, wisdom, and understanding is not what the rabbis were so impressed with. They were impressed with his theological knowledge. Notice the three activities Jesus is engaged in in verses 46 and 47. Verse 46 describes two of those three activities. It says that Jesus was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Listening to them and asking them questions. And remember, this is happening immediately after the Passover festival, after the, the, the Passover had taken place. Because rabbis would come to Jerusalem from, from all over Israel to participate in the Passover, it was customary for them to gather together for informal theological discussions before they all went home in different directions. After the Passover, they would all get together and hang out for a short while before they all went back to their homes. And something similar to this happens with Presbyterian elders at our annual Presbytery meetings. In the evenings, when all the scheduled work for the day has been completed, you'll see elders at the Presbytery meetings, you'll see elders from all over the country huddle together in deep conversation with one another. There will be a group gathered in the hotel lobby. There will be uh, another group sitting outside on the patio. Uh, there will be a group of elders that never actually made it out of our meeting room, the meeting room we just spent the last 10 hours working in. We're supposed to be going to bed at this time of night because there is more work scheduled for the next morning, or we may have to catch a plane flight in the next morning. But you'll see elders gathered together for several hours in the evenings talking about the weighty things of God and faith. Well, the first century rabbis were no different. Uh, after the Passover, they gathered together in different areas of the temple to engage in this kind of meaningful conversation. And verse 46 tells us that Jesus worked his way into the midst of one of these gatherings. Uh, he was listening to the rabbis, and then he began asking questions of the rabbis. And, and we can discern from verse 47 that the third activity that Jesus was engaged in, the rabbis began asking Jesus questions. Because verse 47 says, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. All who heard Jesus were astonished, not only with his understanding, but the answers that he was giving to their questions. So Jesus wasn't just... Passive, passively eavesdropping on the rabbis as they were conversing with each other. No, he was engaged in the dialogue. He was asking questions, probably very difficult questions, and he was expressing his convictions. Jesus was giving well-reasoned and insightful answers to the questions that the rabbis were posing to him. And this is why the, the teachers in the temple, the rabbis, uh, were so impressed with Jesus. It didn't take them long to realize that this 12-year-old boy was well advanced in his theological understanding and biblical wisdom. And this is, the, this is a testimony to Joseph and Mary being faithful parents. This is, uh, it's evident that they were diligent in teaching the Word of God to their children. When my wife and I were in our 20s, 
we attended a church where the pastor taught a catechism class to the high school aged uh, kids in the congregation. And every year, he teach the catechism class, and every year, some of the older students would graduate the class, and some younger students would begin the class. And one Sunday morning, the pastor was, as the pastor was preaching, uh, he was addressing the parents in the congregation, and he said something that rocked their boat. He said, I don't need to ask you what goes on inside your home. I don't even need to go visit your home to see what happens in there. I just need to talk with your children. When I talk with your children, I have a really really good idea of what's going on inside your home. Now, needless to say, a lot of parents were squirming in the pews that Sunday morning. And I imagine several of them were having some inquisitive conversations with their teenagers on the way home. But the pastor's point is true. When parents are diligent with teaching their children, it shows. And when parents are not diligent with teaching their children, it shows. And the glimpse we're giving of the 12-year-old Jesus shows that Joseph and Mary were diligent with teaching Jesus. Uh, They spoke with him about the things of God when they sat in their house, when they walked by the way, when they laid down, and when they rose up. They wrote the promises of God on the doorposts of their house and on their gates. And it's evident that they faithfully taught Jesus to love the Lord our God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, because we see the fruit of their labors in Jesus' interaction with the rabbis in our sermon text. But let me be quick to say, Jesus' display of theological knowledge and wisdom was not only a testimony to Joseph and Mary's faithful parenting, it was also a testimony to Jesus' own commitment to God. Parents can diligently teach their children until they're blue in the face, but if the child is not willing to receive his parents' instruction, and if the child is not willing to walk in his parents' instruction, then the parents are going to feel defeated and frustrated. The parents are going to feel defeated and frustrated because their child's life is not bearing the desired fruit of righteousness. There are a number of proverbs that speak about the foolish son who brings grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Sometimes this grief and bitterness can be traced back to negligent parenting, but other times it's because the child is sinfully stubborn and rebellious. Jesus, of course, was never sinfully stubborn or rebellious. But in saying this, let's not allow an aberrant view of Jesus' humanity to cause us to discount and dismiss his righteous obedience to his parents' instruction. Hebrews 4.15 explains that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus in all ways is tempted, was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let me ask the children in the congregation, Are you ever tempted to disobey your parents? Are you ever tempted to rebel against your parents' authority? Are you ever tempted to run off and do something else when there's schoolwork to be done? As a young child, Jesus was tempted in all the same ways that young children are tempted to today. 
and yet he was without sin. He always resisted the temptation to sin. He always resisted in order to do what was right and obedient. So when we see how much knowledge and wisdom he he had at the age of 12, it's a positive testimony to his submission to his parents. They faithfully trained him in the way that he should go, and he received their training, and he walked in their training. He heard the instruction of his father and did not forsake the law of his mother. They were like a graceful ornament on his head and chains about his neck. Jesus inclined his ear to wisdom and applied his heart to understanding. He sought wisdom as silver and searched for her as for hidden treasures. He understood the fear of the Lord and he found the knowledge of God. Wisdom entered his heart and knowledge was pleasant to his soul. So brothers and sisters, the blessings of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding are available to everyone who righteously fears the Lord. This is not just something that Jesus attained and is not available to us. We cannot attain uh, to the heights of Jesus, the, 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 his knowledge and his wisdom and his understanding, and yet the scriptures place before us the, the invitation to come and to seek knowledge, to gain wisdom, and to grow in understanding. Read the wisdom literature in the Bibles. In the Bible, read Psalms, read Proverbs, read Ecclesiastes. Over and over again, the scriptures impress upon you the immense blessings and benefits that you will enjoy when you seek the Lord's wisdom and meditate upon his testimonies. Yes, there are many things in the world to distract you from this kind of study. And yes, there are many temptations that might cause you to neglect your study of God's word. It's difficult to study God's word. It requires effort. It requires diligence. It requires endurance. But the fruit that will be born in your life has immense value and will bring exceedingly great joy into your hearts. The 12-year-old Jesus demonstrates this to us. Not in a boastful way, but in an a a noticeable way, Jesus' interaction with the rabbis proved the truth of what's written in Psalm 119, verses 99 and 100. Jesus was able to say, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. These can be your statements as well, dear friends. And while I especially want to encourage the young people in our congregation to be diligent in pursuing biblical knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. I also want to encourage the older people to do the same thing. You've, you've, you're never too old to begin seeking the wisdom of God. If you come to faith in Jesus later in life, or if for some other reasons you haven't developed the, uh, a habit of reading and meditating upon the Holy Scriptures... It's not too late to begin. It's not too late to begin. There are great benefits, great joys, great security that awaits you as you apply yourself to such a study. Now, tomorrow is the beginning of a new year. Uh, 
I, I don't typically uh, make a big deal about making New Year's resolutions, but if you're going to make a resolution, then let it be a good one. Uh, and what better resolution can a person make than to resolve to grow in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of the Lord? But as, a, as I said a few minutes ago, the most impressive thing that Jesus did in the temple was not show how vast his theological understanding was, albeit that was vast. Uh, the rabbis were impressed with that, and they should have been impressed with that. Uh, but what the rabbis missed, and what everybody else in the temple missed, is that Jesus was displaying a profound understanding of his identity and his calling. He was displaying a profound understanding of his, of his identity and his calling. Even Joseph and Mary missed this one. Uh, look at verses 48 and 49. After three days of looking for Jesus, when Joseph and Mary finally found him in the temple, Mary said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus' reference to his father's business reveals that he understood that he's the Messiah. In his humanity, at the age of 12, Jesus already understood that he is the Messiah. He understood that he's the one who will save his people from their sins. He understood that he's the one who has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he understood that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Realize, Jesus had just observed the Passover festival. He watched Joseph bring a pure and spotless sacrificial lamb to be slaughtered for his family. And Jesus knew that that lamb represented something greater than what was apparent to the uninformed eye. And Jesus knew that the, the, the shed blood of that lamb represented an atonement for sin. And Jesus also knew that that lamb didn't actually atone for anyone's sin but that it merely served as a type and shadow of the one sacrifice that will uh, perfect forever those whom God is sanctifying. So as the 12-year-old Jesus is watching his family's spotless lamb being offered up and slaughtered, and as he's looking around and he's seeing tens of thousands of spotless lambs being offered up and slaughtered, Jesus is realizing that all of this death, all of this bloodshed is pointing to him. He knew he, Jesus that is, knew that he is the lamb slain from before the foundations of the world. He knew that the bloody death of all those Passover lambs was a picture of the bloody death he was going to experience on behalf of God's elect. And Jesus recognized that the excruciating atonement that he was going to make is an essential component of his father's business. So as Mary questions Jesus about why he lingered behind in Jerusalem, 
asserting that your father and I have sought you anxiously, Jesus reframes the situation. Not being disrespectful to his parents, his earthly parents, not being defiant to their authority, and in no way being ungrateful for all that Joseph had done and provided as Jesus' earthly adoptive father, Jesus reframed the situation by reminding Joseph and Mary that he is the son of God. And he has a mission as a son of God. Joseph and Mary knew this about Jesus. He wasn't revealing this to them for the first time. They knew this about Jesus because God had revealed it to them 12 years earlier when the angel visited and all those other uh, things that I, I mentioned earlier in the morning was with Simeon and Anna and, and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. All these things had been revealed to Joseph and Mary, and yet in this moment, they had lost sight of this, this very essential fact about their son. So Jesus reminds them with a question, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? It's remarkable that the first words of Jesus that Luke records in his gospel are these words in which Jesus so clearly refers to his divine sonship and in which he displays so clear an understanding of his life's calling. In John's gospel, which records many of the things that Jesus said in his 30s, we read him saying things like, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Or, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Or, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. And, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now we read these statements from the 30-something Jesus and we think to ourselves, of course, he's an adult. Uh, he knows his identity and his mission in this world. But what Luke is showing us in our sermon text is that Jesus understood these things when he was still a boy, when he was 12 years old. But even more to the point, what Luke is showing us is that Jesus was already actively engaged in the work of redeeming his elect. Jesus was already, at 12 years, of old, 12 years of age, already actively engaged, that is, knowingly um, doing with intention the work that God had given to him to redeem his elect. How so, you ask? By doing all that the Father requires. By doing all that the Father requires. Let me explain. Many people mistakenly think that Jesus accomplished everything that was needed to redeem sinners from their sin when he died on the cross. Now, let me be really quick to say that it's essential that Jesus 
uh, had died on the cross. There, there can be no redemption from sin if Jesus did not die on a cross. But the point I'm making here is that Jesus needed to do more for our salvation than to die on the cross. Not only did he need to give his life as a ransom for many, which is what he did when he died on a cross, but prior to his death, Jesus needed to live the perfect life of obedience to God's law. He needed to attain the righteousness that would be imputed to sinners at the time of their justification. Think of it this way. The salvation of a sinner involves a a two-way exchange. A two-way exchange. What's exchanged is sin and righteousness. Jesus takes the sinner's sin and puts it on himself, and then he also takes his righteousness and gives it to the sinner. So the redeemed sinner doesn't only have his sins taken away from him, but the redeemed sinner also has the perfect righteousness of Jesus imputed to him. When Jesus hung on the cross, he bore the divine justice of God the Father against the sin of every elect person. That's when Jesus made atonement for the sins of his people. And that describes one half of the two-way exchange that Jesus, uh, that, that happens when a sinner is saved. Uh, the other half of that two-way exchange is the imputation of Jesus' righteousness to the sinner. And that happens when the sinner is justified. But ask yourself, when did Jesus achieve the righteousness that's imputed to the sinner? When did Jesus achieve the righteousness that gets imputed to the sinner by faith? Jesus wasn't born with that righteousness. He was the second Adam. He came into this world without sin, but yet he did not come with having attained righteousness already. Like Adam, he, he needed to demonstrate his obedience to God. And so it needed to be that righteousness which Jesus imputes to the, to the redeemed sinner is a righteousness that was earned. So when did Jesus earn the righteousness that is imputed to the sinner? The answer is that he earned it during his entire earthly life. Jesus earned that righteousness through all 33 years of his earthly life. So when the 12-year-old Jesus told Joseph and Mary that he needed to be about his father's business, he wasn't referring to something that he's going to do in another 20-something years from, uh, in the future from that point. He was referring to what he had been doing for the past three days in Jerusalem. Luke's account doesn't doesn't give us all the details of what Jesus was doing during those three days. But we can safely deduce that whatever he was doing, it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Whatever he was doing, it was necessary to to be doing the Father's business. And Joseph and Mary didn't get it when Jesus explained this to them. It's not that they didn't know, as, we, as, as I described earlier. It's not as if they didn't know that Jesus was the Son of God and uh, that he needed to be about his Father's business. They knew that. They were just too distracted by the hustle and bustle of the past three days to understand what Jesus was talking about in the moment. Look at verse 50. After Jesus explained to Joseph and Mary that he needed to be about his father's business. Luke writes in verse 50, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. They did not understand 
the statement which he spoke to them. Brothers and sisters, this raises an important question. Um, What would cause them not to understand? And I think I've already answered that question. It was because they were caught up in the hustle and bustle of the past three days. Their minds were occupied with with the details of what they've been doing, and they weren't looking at the bigger picture. They weren't looking at the at the context in which all this was happening. So the question that, that we should be asking ourselves is, am I distracted by the hustle and bustle of life? Brothers and sisters, are you distracted by the hustle and bustle of your life? Do you feel as though your life is speeding by at 100 miles per hour? That you're being pulled in a, a million different directions? that you rarely have time to pause and reflect upon what Christ is doing in your life. Like Joseph and Mary, if you are caught up in the moment, the moment details of daily life, if you're not reflecting upon the greater context in which those details are to be understood, if you're not seeing them in the light of God's glorious word, then you might be missing some important things of what Jesus is doing in your life. And you might not be understanding what he is saying to you, not because you don't know the truth, not because you've never heard it, but because you become distracted with life. This is a good time of year, brothers and sisters, to hit the reset button. Remember what's important It's a good time of the year to commit yourself to to growing in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And not just that which the world offers, but that which comes from above. The wisdom which comes from the Father of lights, which comes down and which brings to us uh, all that we stand in need of. We ought to always be prioritizing Christ Jesus. We ought always to be counting our blessings uh, that we have in Christ Jesus. We ought always to be walking in the knowledge that Christ continues to be about the work of his Father, which is, at this point in redemptive history, to be uh, making intercession for you and to be saving you to the uttermost. And when we remind ourselves of these things and when we keep our, our, we, we keep our lives properly focused in the light of God's word, then we will understand what Christ is is talking about to us. We will receive the joy. We will not be like Joseph and Mary who were distracted and did not understand the richness of what Christ was speaking, but that we would live in and enjoy the richness of Christ each day of our lives. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.